this morning, I got a question for you. Has there ever been a time in your life that you look back and you participated in a fashion trend that you now regret? Anybody? Okay. Uh, I do have to be honest. I think anyone uh, who currently uses fanny packs will eventually regret that someday. That's just my opinion. Uh, don't hate me, okay? Uh, <laughs> no, but for real, I've, I've worked in youth ministry long enough, just over 10 years now, and uh, I've learned a few things about teenagers. And one of the things I've learned is that if you hang out with people who are 11 years old to about 16 years old, during those five years, they will change their entire look about three to five times, right? For whatever different reason, maybe, you know, physically they're growing from 4'7 to 5'7 to maybe even 6'7, but some of it's because they're trying to figure out who they are, right? One minute it's totally goth, the next minute it's flowers in their hat, and the next minute it's baggy skater pants. Same person, three years in a row. And the interesting thing about that is I've walked, through kid, walked with kids through middle school and high school and saw them change their outward appearance ten times sometimes because they believe that something in here would change if something out here was changing. Right? And, and, and I think one of the simplest ways that we often try to express but also discover our identity is in what we clothe ourselves with what we put on on the outside. There's a lot of other ways that we do that, but our culture often, though, what they do is they see the ways that we are defined. They see the categories that we seek out to define ourselves, and in those categories, our culture winds up separating us, right? I've seen kids who went from having five friends one semester change their entire look. Now they have 65 friends, but those first five friends they don't hang out with anymore. Why? Because they like this person for how they were over here. And often in our culture, what defines us has a way of separating us. And the world loves to define us by these artificial categories, things that are not necessarily in, intrinsically true about who we are. Um, and, and in this doing, it winds up separating us. And this morning, we're going to dive into what I think is one of the most significant implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a new identity that we get. And as Paul is going to mention in our text this morning, it's something that we clothe ourselves in. It's, it's a new identity that we get. And in this new identity, God begins to redefine us. But instead of separating us, what uniquely happens in spaces like this in the body of Christ is that God actually begins, us to, dr begins to draw us together in the ways that we are uniquely different. And so as we read the end of Galatians chapter 3 this morning, we're going to learn what it looks like to receive a new identity from Jesus. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Um, we're going to read this together in just a moment, but Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23, we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Galatians 3, 23 through 29. And if you're able to, I'd invite you to join and stand with us as we read. Keep your finger in Galatians 3 because you're going to need your Bible open today. But let's read this together. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. 
And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words this morning to us. I pray that as we approach what you describe as seed, that you're, you're casting across many different types of soil, that here, God, you would find soft soil that receives the seed of your word, and that fruit would be growing out of our time, our experience, our receiving your word today. Please speak through me in a way that only you can so that uh, everyone here this morning hears you speaking directly loud and clear to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good job reading. You're going to have a seat. But here's the basic thought flow of the, pat- of the passage. Let me just break it down for you really quick. Um, number one, the law was our guardian. In other words, it kept us safe. It prepared us for something that was coming eventually. But because the way of faith has now come, it's now been revealed. That is, God grants us salvation through Jesus Christ and then deposits into us the promised Holy Spirit. We don't need the guardian anymore. Therefore, all who put faith in Jesus Christ are children of God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been made right with God. We've been adopted into his royal family. So we are one in Jesus Christ because it's in and through Jesus that we are recipients of these promised blessings. And now that we belong to Christ, God's promise belongs to us. And everybody else who also has put their faith in Jesus. God's promise does not just belong to me. It doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to everyone here who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore... If I have the same standing before God as the person next to me, I have no reason to treat them as less than me. That's the basic thought flow of the passage. Okay, that's essentially what Paul is saying. So if you stop listening now, you pretty much got the whole message. But you should probably hang on because there's a lot more to come that I think God wants to speak directly to you. But what we see is the Apostle Paul reminding the Galatians that because they now belong to Christ and and no longer this world system of measuring goodness or success, they're redefined entirely and they're united with everybody else who belongs to Christ. You could say it this way. The Christian's new identity is a new me and a new we. The Christian's new identity is a new we, a new me and a new we. So we have a new identity that came way before us that we've been brought into, so our identity precedes us. And this new identity completely changes everything about our lives, everything about our relationships with other people, every, even how we view ourselves. So our identity redefines us. And finally, because this is also true for everybody else who's put their faith in Jesus, our identity unites us. Okay? Our new identity precedes us, our new identity redefines us, and our new identity unites us. In other words, the Christian's new identity is a new me and a new we. That's the point Paul is making here. So let's break this down. Number one, our new identity precedes us. Look at verse 23. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us. In other words, there was something that was going to be available to us. 
But before that could happen, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until something. Until we could be made right with God through faith. So, so there was something that we now experience and has redefined us, has given us a new identity, but that already was set in place far before we ever came into the picture. We had an inheritance set before us far before we ever got to it. it reminds me of something that preceded me and created a legacy for me to live in. This is a 14 karat gold grandfather clock that I inherited from my great-great-uncle Byron. Now, the reason I inherited it and some, not someone else is it has my initials on it. And he and I are the only two in our family who have those initials. So it naturally just went to the next person who would have those initials, which wound up being me. My great-great-uncle Byron worked for Standard Oil Company for 43 years. He was 19 years old when he started. That was his first job, and he retired when he was six, 62. I think that's right. And um, I'm looking over to my dad just to make sure. <laughs> he told me that this morning. Um, so 60, uh, 62 years old, he retires, and as a retirement gift for 43 years of pumping gas... They say, you have created this amazing legacy of faithfulness and commitment and hard work that has inspired everybody here at our company. We really appreciate your service. And so this became his reward for a legacy that he built up, that he created. And I received this not because I did anything to earn it. This is not anything I can brag about at all. I didn't even have the, the, the option in what my initials would be in order to receive this, right? I, I can take no pride in the inheritance that I have received other than the fact that it created a legacy of commitment and faithfulness and hard work that I now live within. This was an inheritance that was set in motion long before I ever came into the picture, but has actually inspired me because of the way it preceded me. There's this inheritance that's been waiting for us all along that is of much greater value than a 14 karat gold grandfather clock. That doesn't work. <laughs> the plan all along was that people would be made right with God and given an eternal inheritance through their faith in Jesus Christ. But before that was possible, before that came into being... There was an identity that was available to people that, that they were able to walk with God and their sin would be able to be covered until it could be completely paid for. And it's been the law that has been patiently guiding us and preparing us and pointing us to Jesus Christ for thousands of years until Jesus came. And I, this is where the new identity that was prepared for us long before is something that, um, that, that, that gives us a definition of who we are now, something that we did nothing to earn, something that we did nothing to impress God with, but that we were just graciously granted. He was setting up the greatest redemption story the world has ever known. It's just been displayed across the pages of Scripture from Adam all the way to the final pages of the New Testament. And it's all pointing to what God was doing to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And when you and I put our faith in Jesus, all of God's promises are now granted to us. 
Everything that Jesus earned, all the things that, that Jesus now has received as a result of his faithfulness to God's mission, we are now heirs of with Christ. We inherit this with him. And so I'm simply stepping into the glory of a legacy that, that long preceded me and far outshines me. That's, that's the first thing that Paul's pointing to here is that this is something that's been, been prepared for you ahead of time. But not only does my new identity precede me, the Christian has a new identity, but not only does that come before me and precede me, our new identity redefines us. Okay? Notice the next couple of verses, starting in verse 26. For you're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. We are redefined. The, the meaning of our lives, the meaning of our relationships, the ways that we connect with people, and the way we connect with God, and the way that we even connect with ourselves have been totally redefined. Being baptized United with Christ in baptism is, is something that refers to our identity in a way that it's all-consuming. Okay, so I want, I want to give you a quick insight onto what he's referring to here. The word that he used, united with Christ in baptism, that word baptism, he's not referring to something that's like a sprinkling. He's not referring to something that happened when you were, um, that, that, that just like kind of came over top of you. It is a full immersion he's referring to because the word is used, the word that is used is the word baptizo, okay? And, and that word is, actually did not originate as a biblical term necessarily. It was a fashion term. It was a way that you would change the identity of a particular fabric. Right? So you had, you had a white cloth or you had a white you know, thread or something like that. And you wanted to change its identity. What you would do is completely submerge it into dye until it was totally different. You would baptizo it. And then when you would pull it out, it had a new look. It had a new identity. It had a new meaning. It had a new market value. It had a new customer base. It, it had a new identity. And Paul's saying that this is what happens to us when we're saved. We're united to Jesus Christ in baptism. We have a new identity that totally consumes us. This is why I don't think it makes sense to be a Christian and not get baptized. It's like saying, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to dip my toes in Jesus and I'm going to be kind of partly in. And Jesus is like, that's not how this whole faith thing works. I went all in for you. And I'm redefining you. Why are you resisting the public declaration of that? Our new identity redefines us. We're united and we have this identity that completely consumes us when we're united to Jesus in his baptism. And what is our new identity is that we are now children of God. We are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are loved. We are made sufficient. We are entirely enjoyed now by a heavenly father. Right? You, you, you think back to the moment when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. Why did, why did Jesus let John, his cousin, submerge him in the water and raise him up again? Because he needed to demonstrate his public allegiance to Christianity? Obviously, no. Right? Exactly. Christianity wasn't... He started Christianity. No, no. First, he was setting an example for us to follow. 
But when Jesus came up out of the water, what did the father say of his son? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the statement that communicates the affection of love, the, the, the declaration of delight. And this whole idea of being united with Christ in baptism is to say that when you become a child of God, by the process of faith in Jesus Christ, you die to who you were. And, and your sins are totally forgiven. And you are united with Christ in his death. And you are raised to new life. And this declaration now becomes true of you. This declaration of the Father, I'm, I'm well pleased in you, my son. I delight entirely in you, my daughter, and everyone else paying attention to me right now. Look at my sons and look at my daughters. They represent me. They are in my image. And I delight in them. When I'm totally consumed in a redefined identity. I'm united with Christ in his baptism. This declaration now becomes true of me. You're not only forgiven, you're elevated to the status of children of the king, joint heirs with Christ of all things. You are completely redefined by the love of God. No longer are the pains of rejected love or the subtle jabs of disrespect even remotely relevant to who you are now in Christ. You have a new definition. And so the Christian's new identity is a new me. The old me is dead. There is a totally new me. But it's also a new we. Because not only does our new identity redefine us, but our new identity unites us. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are his true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The world likes to define us, right, by these artificial categories. And in those definitions, it often separates us out. All right, and, the, and the time that this was written, probably the three biggest categories that people were defined by and separated into would have been these ones. You have Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. And there's probably a few more, but these definitely still apply to our culture even. I mean, think about this. Okay, Jew or Greek was a way to refer to culture and race. For, because for anybody growing up as a Jew, the way that you viewed the world was this. You, you, you had one view of culture. One culture that mattered, Jewish culture. There was one race that mattered, the Jews. There was one religion that mattered, Judaism. And everybody else was not you. Like, it didn't matter what all their distinctions were. They just weren't Jewish. They were Gentile. And that's how the Jews looked at the rest of the world. You were a totally different race. And you were separated by your identity. Now, let's apply that to our culture for just a minute. What's one of the most divisive things that has happened in our culture in the last few years? There's been a few, but I think one of the things is the racial tension that we've been living through as a nation has incredibly divided us. Um, but it's not actually that new. I mean, even go back a few hundred years. The moment that slaves landed on this shore, racial tension started. Frankly, the moment that explorers landed on this shore, racial tension started in our country. And, and so you start to think back on this idea of 
racial division. It's not even new for... Our country's not the pioneer when it comes to racial division. Now, you go back thousands and thousands of years. You look at what's happening in the Middle East. You look at what's happening in Eastern Europe. Right? Racial division for all of history from the entire globe is separated and divided people. And wars are fought and people are separated and divided. Like race and culture have often been used to define us and separate us. But it doesn't even stop there. Paul says, yeah, yeah, there's other things that define us and separated us. Now you have slave and free, he refers to. Because in this culture, you were either a slave, an indentured servant, or you were free. There was this maybe tiny sliver of middle class, but it wasn't actually that large. And so everybody else, they either owned the, in, the indentured servitude of people, or you were indebted to somebody to serve them. And it's not necessarily speaking to human rights violations. He was referring to distinctions in um, social and economic status. I preached this a few months ago in our series on the life of Moses when I talked about slavery in the Bible. But this is specifically referring to indentured servitude, a way to um, contract yourself out to somebody in order to pay your debts back to them. So in other words, these people are in a very low status when it comes to a social or an economic sense. And so Paul's saying that no matter where you find yourself in society, no matter the size of your bank account, no matter the influence and mobility you have in an economic sense, Jesus Christ levels the playing field of value. Right? Here in the church, the body of Christ as a whole, people with money or power don't have greater value. The people who pay the bills don't have more sway than those who give their widows might. Those who show up to church in suits don't have more influence in God's house than those who wear the same thing every single week. This is what Paul's saying. Considering the eternal debt we all owe to God, we're all equally poor. And considering the eternal inheritance we all share with Christ, we are all equally wealthy. Human distinctions based on socioeconomic status are irrelevant here in God's house. But he goes on, gender and sexuality, the last thing he says separates us and defines us. He says in Christ there's no male or female, no male and female. In other words, the, the value we assign to people based on their gender is also irrelevant in God's house. Uh, you guys ever heard the song by James Brown, It's a Man's World? Right? In Paul's culture, in Jesus' culture, in, in the Galatian culture 2,000 years ago, it was a man's world, and, and women hardly existed. They were treated like property. Like cattle had more value than women in this culture. And Christians were actually the first people that brought women into the scene as equals. The reality is that Jesus Christ was the first one who brought a woman into the, into the learning environment as a disciple. It doesn't mean everyone's equal. No, that's not what I'm getting at. I Before God, yes, on this earth we have different distinctions within ourselves. We're not the same. But before God, we're equal. And then outside of that, there's a diversity that is, that is beautiful. But in Christ, though, something unique happens. When, when we are redefined by who we are in Christ, see, not by race or culture or social status or gender or whether you're married or what you have, or whether you're single, or you got a college degree, or any other, any other sort of artificial marker, you're redefined by Jesus Christ. There's a whole new definition of who you are. No longer do the things of this world redefine you. 
who you are in Christ redefines you. I want you to hear these two thoughts. Number one, no longer is what has been done to you defining of you. And number two, no longer is what you have done defining of you. Some of you need to hear that today because, because it's freedom. That what has been done to you no longer has to define you because of what Jesus experienced on your behalf. What has been done to Jesus on your behalf now redefines you. And additionally, no longer what you have done, the things that you don't want anybody else to know about, you've been defined by something totally more consuming than even the, the, the identity of shame or regret that you feel on the inside. This morning, God wants to give you a new definition. Sons and daughters of God who are entirely forgiven and totally delighted in. And as these new identities define us, what happens is they actually unite us. At the end of verse 28, he says, you know, you're, you're not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It didn't say we're the same, but it does say that we are one. There is a, a, a powerful diversity working within the body of Christ with diverse gifts and diverse personalities and diverse skills and diverse backgrounds and diverse cultures they come together and we become one focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and something happens as the world begins to pay attention to this because mostly what your lost friends and family members and co-workers what mostly what they see is the body of Christ separated by what defines us and divides us most people, they think that about Christians. I saw this great commercial recently where there's this guy who's, he's a famous um, concert pianist, and he's sitting between these two grand pianos, and he's sitting on a swivel chair. And so he turns to one and starts playing um, the third movement from Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and it's gorgeous, it's technical, it's difficult, uh, and it's beautiful. And then he swivels on the chair to play on the other piano that's right behind him, and all 88 keys are tuned to the same note. I want you to watch what happens next. the same somehow android makes money off this i don't get it i hate to say it it's a great commercial by android <laughs> but can i say this one of the reasons that your identity in christ matters so much is because it's the only way that we come together in unity 
We come together in unity with our diversity and the world gets to hear a song that it needs to hear. It gets to see a Jesus that it needs to see. And instead of just seeing what we're against, it gets to see what we're for. And yes, we need to speak truth to the things in our culture and in our world that are sin. But man, does the world need to see what we're for. What, the wor- what used to separate us now, now unites us in Jesus Christ and we become one voice, a, a one song that a world desperately needs to hear, that, that we desperately need to hear. See, the Christian's new identity is not just a new me, but it's a new we. We are the body of Christ. And the moment that we start worshiping ourselves is what the world begins to see is the things that divide us. But when we come together, united in one, focusing on the person and the work of Jesus, that we've taken off the clothing of our old identity. That's no longer what defines us anymore, but we've put on Christ. The world gets to see something that is uniquely beautiful. And only possible through the power of God. Maybe the invitation for you this morning is you need to take off that final piece of clothing of your old life. I'm not talking about real clothing. I'm talking metaphorically speaking here, obviously. You need to take off that thing that you've just been holding on to. You're like, yeah, but that's who I am. No, it's not. Who you are is who you are. And you've been redefined by Jesus. What are you hanging on to? So desperately. Because Jesus is hanging on to you. And the invitation for you, maybe you've given your life to Jesus, but you've only given him part of it. He, he gave it all for you. It's only fair that he gets all in return. Maybe for you this morning... The invitation is slightly different. It's to receive what Jesus has done for you in the first place. You've never actually put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you, you've come to church. Maybe you've come to church for a while. Maybe you're familiar with religious language, but you've actually never put your faith in Jesus. The Bible's very clear that every single one of us doesn't actually deserve to go to heaven. We've all sinned. And the sooner we admit that, the better. That We don't deserve righteousness, holiness. We don't deserve a place in heaven can't even earn it. All have sinned, and we all fall short of God's glory, but this is a beautiful invitation that those who put their faith in Jesus, they believe that Jesus died in their place. All of your sin, he paid for, and when he rose again, you've been forgiven. You've been offered the chance to be forgiven. You've been offered the chance to have a new life. You just put your faith in Jesus and surrender completely to him. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning It's not a prayer necessarily that saves you. It's not walking down an aisle or raising a hand that saves you. It's it's your faith. And this morning, you have the chance to put your faith in Jesus. And I just want to give you that opportunity today. I want to invite everybody to close their eyes. and Maybe you'd say something to God along the lines of, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I don't deserve heaven, and I also know that Jesus paid for all of my sin. 
I believe that he died on the cross in my place and he rose again three days later from the grave. Please save me, God. I surrender to you. You are in charge of my life. If you've never prayed something like that to God, if you've never put your faith in God, I want to give you that opportunity just for a few moments. I'm going to pause here and give you the chance to do business with God. Maybe you have and you've received salvation before, but you're still holding on to something. And you need to do business with God in that sense and let go. You need to go all in for him. Because the Christian's new identity is a new me and it's a new we. Jesus, we celebrate what you've done for us. We are so grateful. We are entirely undeserving and yet totally consumed in your love and your delight and your uh, uh, forgiveness and your new life. Oh, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us the faith to completely surrender and trust you. I pray that you would save. I pray that you would um, convict, that you would encourage and challenge in the ways that each one of us uniquely needs to hear your voice this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.